my buddy Earl grew up in a, his, his granddaddy grew up in a church where they played pedal steel every week. Can you imagine that? Wouldn't that be awesome? Man, I want to go to that church. We play pedal steel every week. If you got a Bible, I hope you do. If you don't and you can't afford one, I'd love to buy you one. This is the most important book ever written. It changed my life, and I, I would bet my left leg it will change uh, your life too. Uh, we are studying the book of Hebrews together. Hebrews is at the end of your Bible. Uh, it's not quite the very end, but it's pretty close. Um, so you'll look down there and you'll find a book uh, called Hebrews. We're still in the first chapter. We're talking, working our way through this sermon very, very slowly. Uh, Hebrews is a sermon uh, that has been written down and preserved for us. It's one of the very first Christian sermons uh, that we have uh, written down and recorded for us. And we are working our way through it uh, very slowly. Uh, as we turn to God's word, I'm going to ask you to pray for me as I pray for you. I do this every week and I've been doing it every week for a long time. Uh, but today, for, for no reason I can explain, I feel pretty anxious. And so will you pray against that? That may be a spiritual attack on me and my preaching. Um, but I want to just be here and be present to you guys. And so will you pray for me as I pray for you that in the next few minutes, there will be no distractions. There will only be us attending to God and to God's word. Let's pray. Amen. Hebrews chapter 1. I'm going to start at verse 4, which is an odd place to start, but that's where I'm going to start. Verse 4. It says, And so Jesus became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Or again, quote, I will be his father and he will be my son, end quote. Or again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, quote, let all God's angels worship him, end quote. And speaking of the angels, he says, quote, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the son, he says, quote, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He, says, he also says, quote, In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment. They will be changed, but you Remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, quote, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but this too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When I was a kid, I lived in a two-story brick house uh, on North Edgewater Drive in Fayetteville, North Carolina, surrounded by acres of pine trees, tall, long-leaf pine trees. 
And when I was a kid, there was this small little thunderstorm called Hurricane Fran that came through and absolutely decimated our pine trees. And we did what every family was supposed to do, right? You put everybody in one room on the pull-out sofa in the heart and soul of your house, right behind the chimney for some reason, I don't know. And we're all in there sleeping in the middle of the hurricane. Um, and there's trees cracking everywhere and we're sleeping through. The, and I sleep through the whole thing. I don't wake up for much. Um, Right now, Claire has to like punch me to get me up to help Jack. Uh, but I'm sleeping through. I sleep through the whole thing, and I wake up in the morning, and Mom tells me this incredible story. Mom said in the middle of the night last night, it got so loud. There were trees breaking everywhere that it, it woke me up. And, and as I woke up, I opened my eyes, and I sat straight up in bed, and I was scared to death. And then the room was filled with this huge, bright, shining light. And I heard a voice say, do not be afraid. And then I heard a loud crash and the light disappeared and I was calm. I went back to sleep. Andrew, Mary-Kate, Maggie, last night an angel saved us. And sure enough, I walked outside there in my backyard was a pine tree about yay big around that had fallen directly towards our house. It would have cut our house clean in half and there was nothing to obstruct it from falling on our house on the very room in the center of our house where all of us were sleeping. Except for somehow, some way, by God's grace or according to my mama, an angel, that tree fell like this and as it fell towards my house, it snapped back on top of itself and scratched down the outside of our chimney, not even removing a single brick, just leaving a bunch of pine sap. That morning as I looked at that tree, I believed my mama. I believed that she was telling me the truth. But maybe you don't. Maybe the idea of powerful forces you cannot see boggles your mind is not something you are willing to entertain but then again I am certain of something else I'm certain that you believe in electricity and gravity and electromagnetism and even germs my mama told me about those things too over and over and over again and I believed her but if she tried to tell a first century Greek or a first century Jew about any one of those things electricity or gravity, or germs. They would have interacted with her the same way you might interact with her that morning when she tells you about the angel appearing in our living room and saving us during one of the biggest storms I've ever seen. But I know just because you can't see something doesn't mean it's not there. So I still believe my mom. Just because you can't see something doesn't mean it's not there. You can't see radio waves or UV radiation or even oxygen, but they all exist and they affect our daily lives. And the Bible teaches that angels do exist, that they are just as real as any of these other things and they are just as much of God's created order. Over 300 times in the Bible, angels are mentioned and talked about. And what blew my mind as I researched this sermon is do you realize that more than half of those times, most of the times angels come up or in the New Testament 
I don't know why that surprises me, but it does. Uh, Over 180 times they show up in the New Testament. So it's really natural to talk about angels, and it's especially so for the preacher in this book of Hebrews. You see, Hebrews is written to a bunch of Greek-speaking Jewish Christians, and these people definitely believe in angels. We know that at the same time, a contemporary church over in Colossae, we see this in Colossians chapter 2, verse 19, that not only do they believe in uh, angels, but there are people, there are both uh, People who've converted to Christianity who are being tempted to worship angels and there are non-Christians who worship angels, knowingly worship angels. But here, uh, the author of Hebrews brings up angels and he brings it up for two reasons uh, very, very uh, quickly. The first is that he starts off his letter and we talked about this for the last two weeks by saying that God speaks, that in the past God spoke to our ancestors uh, by the prophets in many and various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. You might ask, how does God speak? And we talked about this a little bit, that God spoke through prophets. Well, prophets are the human instruments that God uses to speak. But according to uh, the scriptures, that prophets got their information, not just from the Holy Spirit, but were mediated to them uh, by angels. Places like Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. You might want to write this down. I'm not gonna, you don't have time to turn there. It says, the law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. The law was given through angels. We're going to talk about that more uh, next time. The Bible talks that the Pentateuch was just given to Moses uh, by angels. And so when the author talks about God speaking, he thinks in his head, like every Jewish person at the time thinks in his head, that when God speaks, it comes from God through angels to human beings to Israel. And he has to say that this revelation given to us in Jesus is better than that revelation, is is more complete, more full, is the fulfillment of. And so Jesus must indeed be greater than the angels or else you don't need to listen to him. But the second reason that it comes up is because angels are are greater than the greatest, that Jesus is greater than the greatest. You see, angels are the greatest spiritual force in the world. And so in some general sense, the author of Hebrews has to show that Jesus is better and greater and more dis- and distinct from the angels. Because the angels show up everywhere in the Old Testament. If you know your Bible at all, you can think back over this. But it's amazing to think about how many places angels show up. Angels bar the garden after Adam and Eve are expelled to keep them from eating from the tree of eternal life and therefore living forever in their fallen sinful state, thus creating hell on earth. Angels give Moses the law. Angels bring judgment upon wicked cities and wicked people. Angels rescue people, uh, rescue the oppressed, rescue uh, the Israelites uh, from Egypt. We see pictures of angels hanging on the curtains of the tabernacle and painted and carved into the walls of the temple. We see angels are even carved onto the top of the Ark of the Covenant. If you don't know anything about the Bible, the Ark of the Covenant is this fancy golden box that holds the Ten Commandments and some manna and the rod of Moses. And it represents basically the throne of God on earth. And on top of that box to represent the place where God's presence sits are carved angels. So angels are everywhere associated with redemption of God's people and the communicating of God's presence. They are in the Old Testament what shows up when you think about judgment, salvation, and revelation. The three most important things that every religion has to figure out. And the preacher of Hebrews is going to show us in this 10 verses five ways that Jesus is superior to the angels. 
I'm built this sermon backwards because it's a lot of hard work. And so I'm going to give you the conclusion right now. If you're taking notes and you might fall asleep in five minutes, this is, this is the payoff. This is what I'm going to spend the next 20 minutes trying to convince you is true. Jesus is superior to the angels in five ways. Verse 4 and verse 5 say Jesus is greater than the angels because he is the unique son of God. He has a unique relationship with God the Father. He is the only begotten son in the words of John 3.16. So he is greater than the angels because he is the son. Number two, Jesus is greater than the angels because angels worship him. That's verse, uh, you see that in verse 6? Then in verse uh, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, and 13, 14, they kind of all fall into these next three points that I want to point to. Jesus is greater than the angels because angels are servants but Jesus sits on an eternal throne. That's number three. Jesus is greater than the angels because angels are servants, but Jesus sits on an eternal throne. He reigns forever. Point four, Jesus is greater than the angels because they are, they're transitory creatures. They are created beings. But Jesus is forever unchanging creator. Or again, Jesus is greater than the angels because they are transitory creatures. But he is the unchanging creator. And five, this is really especially verse 13, it says, Jesus is greater than the angels because Jesus sits in the presence of God. Whereas the angels stand ready to obey. Fifth one is Jesus is greater. We know Jesus is greater than the angels because he gets to sit down. And the angels have to stand. Those five things. I'm going to argue really hard over those five things. It's going to take a lot of work, a lot of intellectual investment on your behalf and on my behalf, but you'll see them. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you why those five things are important. And I've spent weeks, two weeks, just pouring over this, asking God, why does this matter? Why does this matter to Oakland Presbyterian Church? Why does this matter uh, to this small persecuted church outside of Rome? Why does it matter to Andrew and Claire Ruth? Why does it matter to you? And I'm going to give you this at the beginning, and then I'm going to spend 20 minutes arguing for it. And so if you tune me out, I'll go ahead and give you this reason. And I hope it will motivate you to pay more attention to what I'm getting ready to say. This matters. The two overall goals that I think the preacher has, my goals this morning are this. First, to inspire worship. First goal, inspire worship. The preacher in Hebrews is trying to inspire, to invigorate, to, to motivate, to compel your worship. Too often we domesticate Jesus, we neuter Jesus, and we turn him into Siegfried and Roy's white tigers. Awesome. But in the end, you know you're still kind of in control. 
but he will not be domesticated. He will not be controlled. I'm reminded in C.S. Lewis's uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, there's a little girl who meets the Jesus figure who is a giant lion. His name's Aslan. And Lucy, she asks, is he safe? And they laugh at her. He's a lion. Of course he is not safe. But he is good and you can trust him. We cannot think of Jesus as a lap cat. He is an untamed lion. And so we cannot lose this sense of transcendence and hugeness and wonder. And the author of Hebrews is trying to throw you in the deep waters. We cannot lose the awe and the mystery Think about it. Most of us couldn't talk to the president or Justin Timberlake or the national champion Golden State Warriors without being absolutely awestruck dumb. And yet we will will drag our feet when it comes time to try and talk to God. I was sitting in a company of pastors this week and they said, who wants to pray? So we said, so-and-so will pray. And she was like, I guess. And I, I wanted to shake her, but I mean, you're only getting to talk to the one who created everything, created the atoms in your body and the breath in your lungs, I guess. I mean, if I got to talk to him, lost transcendence and wonder and awe and respect. And friends, we all hunger for that. We're desperate for wonder. Psychologists will now show you that there is immense damage done to our psyche when we lose a sense of wonder and the miraculous. We become ungrateful and selfish. We look for this awe and this wonder everywhere when we go on vacation. We go to the mountains so we can feel small. We lose ourselves in the flower blossoms in our garden. We write awesome music because we were built for wonder, for existential awe, and it can only be satisfied in Jesus. Can you imagine the difference it would make in your life if you regained that childlike wonder? If you interacted with all the world as if it were a miracle, as if you sat down to breakfast and said, I cannot believe God invented breakfast sausage think about how much great more gratitude you would have how much more uh, just peace you would have if you sat down if you heard the sound of a fiddle and thought that God would create such incredible things and give us the desire to make music what a world we live in that God invented like 14 types of oak trees in my yard Second reason that he tells us all of this stuff about angels. Again, this is the end of the sermon, and then I'm going back to the beginning. Second reason is the author of Hebrews wants to sure up failing knees. He wants to sure up people who are weak, people who are failing, people who are, who are, who are crushed and oppressed. Remember that the, the book of Hebrews, this sermon has been preached to a church that is struggling. They want to give up. They have barricaded themselves inside their small commune. They are struggling with persecution and with atrophy, with exhaustion, with spiritual lethargy. And the preacher wants them to know that no matter what is arrayed against you, no matter how big your circumstances, no matter how drastic your failures, your Savior towers over angels and demons. He towers over your sin and your addiction, over your sickness. He towers over the government that's oppressing you. He towers over the violence that you're experiencing. He towers over your doubts and your fears. He towers over all of that. Do not give up. 
You see, he is trying to lead us to the same place that Paul leads his church in Romans chapter 8, beginning at 31. Romans chapter 8, verse 31 says this, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also give us everything we need? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who then is the one who's going to condemn us? Christ, no one can because Christ Jesus who died, more than that who was raised to life and is at the right hand of God the Father is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For it is written, every day we're being led as sheep to the slaughter for your sakes. No, in all of these things, in all of these, in famine, nakedness, and sword, and persecution, and war, and all of this, we are more than conquerors through Jesus who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, neither angels, nor demons, neither present, nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything, anything, anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God who is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can we just give a hand clap to Jesus for that? I mean, like, I've been listening to some, some loud preachers lately. If you ain't heard, friends, what he's trying to drag you to is, is this, this pithy saying that, that you've may heard before. It says, don't tell Jesus how big your problems are. Tell your problems how big your Jesus is. Often, we are overwhelmed because we focus on how big our problems are instead of how big our Savior is. Don't tell Jesus how big your problems are. Not just, don't stop there anyways. Don't just tell him how big your problems are. Tell your problems, tell your mind, tell your soul how big your Jesus is. If you want less stress... If you want more confidence, if you want more contentment and serenity, you don't need less problems. That'll never come. You need a bigger Jesus. You need a Jesus substantially bigger than your sin, bigger than your problems. It just so happens that God knew that, and so he put this book in the Bible called Hebrews. You know the author of Hebrews' favorite word? Bigger, better, greater. Same word, he uses it over and over and over again. 14 times he will say, Jesus is bigger, Jesus is better, Jesus is greater, Jesus is greater, Jesus is greater. He is trying to expand your view of Jesus so that when you come up to the mountain, when you come up to the sickness, when you come up to the diagnosis, when you come up to a marriage that is wrecked beyond belief, when you come up to a kid who just won't listen or who will only eat chicken nuggets and mac and cheese, you will know my God is bigger How much bigger? That's what we're going to answer. Five ways Jesus is bigger than the angels. Because if he's bigger than the angels, he's certainly bigger than that hellion living under your roof. I said that out loud, didn't I? I'm talking from, uh, I was not a good kid. First, Jesus is bigger, is better than the angels. 
because he is the unique son of God. We see this in verse 4 and verse 5. Follow with me. I'm going to start just at verse 5. It says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, quote, You are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father, and he will be my son. You see, Jesus is greater because he is the unique son of God. He is called individually the son, my son, my beloved, in whom I am well pleased. We see that in Mark chapter 1. We see that in uh, Matthew chapter 3. We see that in Luke uh, chapter uh, Three, we see Jesus uh, at his baptism is anointed and called my son, my beloved, in whom I'm well pleased. The angels are never called singularly the son of God. Collectively, they are occasionally called sons or children of God in a generic sense. The most obvious place is in Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1 verse 8 says that all the sons of God, all the, all the angels, all the heavenly hosts were assembled before God Almighty. But Satan wasn't there. And then Satan shows up late and God's like, where you been? He's like, I was out looking for somebody to mess up. It's a funny story. But Jesus is distinct in his relationship to the Father. He is unique in this relationship. And so to prove this, the author quotes the Old Testament. And if you have your Bible open, I want to teach you a little bit about how to use your Bible. You'll see in the Bible those words, You are my son. Today I have become your father. They should be in quotation marks and offset. That tells you he's quoting something. And when he's doing that, he's quoting the Old Testament. And so you've got to figure out what is he quoting? Where does it come from? Where does that quote come from? Unless you have all the Bible memorized, which I don't, uh, there are helps in these printed books to show you. Right at the end of that quotation, there should be be a superscript. There should be um, a footnote, a, a letter written up high. Uh, In mine, it's the letter A. And if you go down to the bottom, you'll see a little tiny A, and it'll have a list of verses. Uh, For me, it says Psalm chapter 2, verse verse 7. Excuse me. Sounded like where I grew up in. Seven. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. And so you may want to turn to Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. Leave a marker in Hebrews chapter 1, because we're going to work back and forth. I'm already out of time. I haven't even preached a sermon yet. I'm going to give you a couple things real fast. Like you hold on to your, your, hold on to your hats. We're going to do some abbreviations. I'll give you all this for free some other time. Now Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2 is this incredible hymn. It's this hymn uh, that most people believe was sung when Israel would coronate a king. Uh, and so they, they imagine in their head this song being sung about King David, but it doesn't make enough sense to be about King David exclusively because it's pointing forward. If you read the psalm, you will see uh, that in the psalm, Uh, All the nations and all the peoples of the earth, they conspire against the Lord. They have rejected the Lord and they've rejected his anointing. But God has put one on the throne who is his son. God puts his son on the throne and this anointed son will inherit and judge all the people. But who, and he will also save all who take refuge in him. So he will not only judge the whole world, but he'll also save those who take refuge in him. Psalm 2 outlines this cosmic reign, begun in David, but not accomplished until Jesus returned. It is a promise of salvation and vindication, but all the souls, the souls of all humanity depend on whether they kiss the Son, that is, they, they swear allegiance and, 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 and recognize His rightful rule over their lives, 
or whether they mock the Son. And depending on whether they kiss the Son or mock the Son, they will either be saved or they will be um, judged, they will be crushed. This one Son determines the fates of all nations and all people. That couldn't possibly be David. David never ran a big enough swath of the universe for that to be true of him. His son Solomon had a slightly bigger kingdom, but it wasn't true of him. Never at any point in historic Israel's life has this been true of one of their historical kings, but it is true of the anointed one. The word in Hebrew for anointed one, anybody know it, is Mashiach. It's the word we get Messiah from. It's true of the Messiah for whom if you kiss him, if you swear a fealty and allegiance to him, you, are, you, you find refuge and salvation and safety from the judgment of God. He is the son, the only son, the only one who reigns forever and ever. And second one is we see uh, that we see him quote a, a section out of 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you were in Hebrews, you would be able to find it the same way I talked to you just a minute ago. You would see uh, that there is this spot where it has a footnote, and that footnote would take you to either one of two places, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, or yours might say it might also include 1 Chronicles 17, verse 13. 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles record the exact same story in two different places in the Bible from two different perspectives. And they're nearly identical. Those verses are identical uh, in this place. And what's happening in this story, originally, the, this is a promise uh, God makes to David. You see, David is king over Israel, king over this small nation, and he's just secured safety for everybody, and he's just united all 12 tribes of Israel, and he has come to Jerusalem. Uh, which will now be the capital city. He's finally conquered it and taken over it and, he's ex- and, and there's safety and security and David builds this en- enormous, elaborate palace and he looks over and he sees uh, that the, the Ark of the Covenant, the place of God's presence is still in a tent in the tabernacle. And David says, man, I need to build God a house. That's like literally exactly what the Bible says. David said, I'm gonna build the Lord a house. And he goes to sleep And that night, God talks to a prophet, a dude named Nathan, and says, tell David not to bother with a house. Instead of him building a house for me, I am going to build a house for him. And what God means by house is God says, I'm going to build a legacy. I am going to build a lineage. I am going to build a kingdom out of this man. And so God shows up to David, and he says this in 2 Samuel chapter 7. He says, Quote, I declare to you that the Lord will build a house for you. When your days are over and you go to be with your ancestors, I, this is the Lord talking, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. One of your own flesh and blood, I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. If you read this stuff carefully, you'll notice he never specifies he's talking about David's son, any one of David's sons, uh, specifically not Solomon, who becomes king after David. Solomon did build the first temple, but none of this other stuff is, matches Solomon's life. 
But it does tell us that a human from David's line will be king forever. This son of David will be the son of God and will reveal to all the nations that the Lord is a God of covenantal love, that the God of Israel acts not based on merit, not based on what our actions deserve, but based entirely on God's grace, God's choosing love, God's rescuing faithfulness. And David responds in prayer and worship and wonder the only way he knows how. And he says this in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 18. He says, who am I? Like, who am I in my family that you would do this thing for me? You're too good to us. You were great. You, God, you chose Israel. You are the only God You are the only God and you've chosen to make yourself known to us that we might make you known to the entire world. You are great. You are great forever. I would never dare to ask you to use me in these ways except for you've already promised it. And he says, you are God. Your covenant is trustworthy and you have promised good things to your servant. Friends, the Jesus that saves you, the Jesus that hears the prayers you pray when you bend your knee, when you lay on your bed at night and you say, now I lay me down to sleep, that Jesus, the Jesus who was born in Bethlehem, who was raised in Nazareth and who died on an awful cross outside of Jerusalem, that Jesus is greater than the angels. He is greater than whatever you are facing. And though an angel bar your way, though whatever obstacle stands between you enjoying God's presence, Jesus is bigger than it. And he showed it ultimately in the cross. For the one great weapon arrayed against us, as we will continue to see throughout this book, is death, the fear of death, the sin that it produces in our life. And yet Jesus would stop at nothing, conquering even death to show his incredible love for you. Friends, let's pray. Jesus, we just bow and worship. God, I'm sorry when I domesticate you. Jesus, when I try to tame you and turn you into Mr. Rogers, when I try to just, when I treat you flippantly, when I walk away from your word or from prayer, as though you were one to be trifled with, and yet I remember that you are the one who allowed yourself to be rejected, that you stay persistent in chasing after us, that though we've turned away a thousand times, yet you still hear when we call. And I believe in my heart of hearts that there are many of us here today who are convicted that we've been dealing flippantly with God, that we have not been worshiping Jesus as we ought that we've been crushed and overwhelmed by the circumstances in our life and that we have let it suck the joy out of us, that we have been overwhelmed and crushed by the size of the problems in our life, by the the weight of past failure, by the, the hunger of unmet needs, by the longing for yet fulfilled dreams. And we've been sitting there 
crushed and, and absorbed by these things that we've let fill our vision instead of turning to see you, Jesus, who is greater, who is bigger, who is better. And if that's you today and you just want to turn to Jesus, you can do that right now. He's not far away. Indeed, he is here talking, speaking to you. You can just say, Jesus, I've been turned away from you so long, focusing on things, focusing on problems, but I want to come back. I want to see your goodness again and know your love for me. Would you forgive me and heal me and reconnect me to the power of God that I might know joy and peace and contentment and eternal life? If you just prayed those words or something like it, then you are a Christian. Thanks be to God. Friends, not because we have to, but because we get to. Let's worship God with our tithes and our offerings.